Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host. You'll find us here at prn.fm on the Progressive Radio Network every Monday at 10 a.m. And you can find all of our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. So what am I going to talk about today? Uh, after a few repeats that we did, I don't have a guest today, but I want to do some book reviews. So I... I'm sort of a fan of books. Can hardly read them anymore. I mean, who can? <laughs> am I gonna? I go to bed, right? And I'm, am I gonna read a book or gonna watch a rerun of um, Big Bang Theory? <laughs> Usually, I watch a rerun of Big Bang Theory. But fortunately, uh, many excellent books are on audio, so I've got dozens of them on my phone, and uh, big fan. So. I always appreciate recommendations for good books. Let's, uh, anybody wants to call in with good book recommendations. Um, what's our phone number? Uh, number 701, 7, no, uh, 862-888-874-8784-4888. So, Anybody wants to call in with book recommendations, please do. I, uh, you know, like, <laughs> spent a fortune on the New York Times, and about the only thing I look at is the book review section, which isn't quite to my taste. It's usually about some, uh, you know, first novel of, uh, and, you know, that's important. I don't want to put it down. It's just not really my thing. And <clears throat> I... Uh, I get the magazine The Week, which has no original reporting. They just quote other magazines. It's really cool. And I always look at their book section. So uh, uh, as a book buff, oh, I had, we had uh, dinner last night. My wife is an opera voice teacher. So one of her students was appearing in a small production of Wagner's Rheingold, Das Rheingold, and it was in the basement of a library uptown Manhattan. So we went, and afterwards we went out to dinner with my the accompanist that my wife works with and her husband, who's this really bright guy, and realized he was into a lot of the same things I am, transhumanism. Uh, you might recall we've had on Natasha Vita Moore, she doesn't ring a bell, go look up our back shows. She's a brilliant and very charismatic person, uh, the poster woman for uh, transhumanism, always speaks at transhumanism conferences. But anyway, I noted the stuff he was interested in. So I said, well, here, take a look at my phone. You can see what books I have on my phone. And uh, he showed me his phone. <laughs> so see what books he had on his phone. So, um, book I'm in the middle of right now is The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. And it's kind of a strange book. It's, if you're not a, if you're curious about <coughs> the computer revolution, the personal computer revolution, from the 1960s to today, and you haven't super seriously followed it, which I sort of have. So <clears throat> almost everything in the book to me is a reminder of what I already know. You know, the stories of Hewlett Packard, the stories of Apple. Right now, just as I came into the studio, I'm listening to the story about Larry and Sergey. <laughs> Sergey Brin and Larry Page, co-founders of Google. And you know, they were grad students at Stanford. They worked out this uh, algorithm for <coughs> searching on the web. So, and earlier, the book had the story of um, Jerry Yang and Yahoo. And I met Jerry at uh, various conferences <coughs> before the days of Google. And 
what Yahoo did was sort of, you know, well, <laughs> I recall when my sister started talking about Google Glass. What the hell is Google? Well, it's a search engine. Well, we have Yahoo. What the hell do we need Google for? So, uh, but what Yahoo did, and to oversimplify, was to say, <clears throat> you're searching for shoes. Now, it doesn't know, do you want the history of shoes? Do you want to buy shoes? Uh, but what it would do is find websites first that had shoes in its URL, which was better than nothing, given that there were thousands of websites and who had no way to find them. Uh, I remember when there was, you could buy a physical book <laughs> that had lists of websites in it. Uh, you know, this whole thing that we see as a very orderly process, uh, you know, about how we live online, uh, didn't start that way. You know, people had to decide how to do it and how to make it. But anyway, then if you were selling shoes, you would put the word shoes a uh, hundred times below the fold, you know, where people wouldn't see it. And then you come up first on Yahoo. Well, you can guess it. <laughs> the next website would put the word shoes a thousand times uh, uh, below the fold on their website. And who knew, you know, is that really the one you want? So what uh, Sergey and Larry figured out um, mostly, I guess, uh, Larry, because it was called, um, named after him, Page. <clears throat> but to find sites that dealt with shoes to which other respected websites link to. And then you realize what you're talking about is not objects, not things, but networks. It was identifying the best networked site. And in so doing, I, I always have fun with my students where, um, you know, the computer's usually on because I'm using PowerPoint. And we'll say, well, what about that? Well, let's, you know, pop up Google and start typing. <laughs> let's see how fast Google can make the first choice what we're looking for. You, know, you get a quarter of the way through typing what it is you're looking for. And Google always has it there as your first choice. Uh, it, it's just getting better and better at reading our minds, which has dangerous implications, of course, uh, that people worry about. But <clears throat> in most cases today, before, um, what is it, before it becomes Skynet <laughs> and takes over the world, in the meantime, it's, uh, and not everything these uh, companies do is successful. Recall, years ago, Microsoft launched a natural language feature that never worked. And today we have Siri and Alexa um, that do work. And then, um, what was another one? Oh, Google uh, tried to compete with Amazon because... You know, if you want to buy paper towels, should you start with Google or start with Amazon? Well, <clears throat> I guess most of it, all my students do, have a, an Amazon account, and you go there. It's a good price. may not be the cheapest, but it's, um, they have, a, you know, if they don't, you they'll link to Walmart's price. Yeah. And... You uh, click. It used to be one click. Now, all of a sudden, a dialog box comes up. You have to click again. I guess too many people were buying stuff they didn't want. But anyway, um, so Amazon launched a service where Amazon would store your credit. Oh, and the, the, the best thing about Amazon, of course, is you just click and you, and once or now twice and you're done. Anybody else, you have to put in your name, your address, your credit card. And uh, the hell with that. If it's $2 more, I'll still buy it on Amazon to avoid all that. So Google launched a service where <coughs> they, uh, any seller could join the service. Google would store your name, credit card, and address. And you could buy with one or two clicks from 
anybody who joined the service, and Google would take care of the transaction. <clears throat> well, I don't see that anymore. It disappeared. So there's an example of, um, you know, one of the behemoths trying something, and it didn't work. But anyway, um, getting back to the code, Silicon Valley and the remaking of America. So it sort of walks us through the stories that if you kind of followed this stuff, um, you sort of know, you know, whether through the New York Times or Byte Magazine or whatever we subscribe to over the, over the decades that <coughs> this happened since the, uh, since the 1960s. I remember there's a beautiful story. I have it somewhere in my files, clipped it out of Esquire Magazine. When Esquire Magazine was a serious... Um, serious in-depth magazine. I remember going to the library where I teach, waiting for a colleague uh, to finish class. They had a class in the library. And I just reached on the shelf to the old bound Esquire magazines in the 60s and pull one out. And, you know, there'd be an article by Norman Mailer. 20 pages of solid type. <laughs> I mean, no... Today it's broken up with, you know, excerpts, quotes from the article that are blown up in the middle of it. Who can look at 20 pages of solid type? But you could in those days. You actually read stuff. <clears throat> but anyway, there was a, I'm pretty sure it was Esquire, had an article on uh, the, whatever we want to call them, the original hackers. So there's a story about this guy, Steve Jobs. And... He was a he he was an early figure in uh, Blue Box, so Blue Box was <coughs> the story is that uh, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the phone company switching from dials to tones, so it went from with the dial, and you'd swing the dial around to you know put your finger in four, and it would click four times going back. So that would tell the relays uh, four. <laughs> and that then became dials, and there was a tone associated with four. So you had the phone on your ear, and you hit four. You could hear that tone. But there were other tones that were not on the dial, and they were secret. They were the tones that the system used to uh, do long distance and to, you know, basically control the computers that ran the phone company. Well, some Bell engineer, AT&T engineer, published those tones in a scientific journal, and it got out. So they made these uh, <laughs> enterprising entrepreneurs made these boxes. They're the size of, you know, two packs of cigarettes that had all these tones on them, the ones on your dial tone pad, but the others as well. <coughs> and um, there's a famous figure, Captain Crunch. He was this hippie who was, uh, they were called phone freaks. He was a phone freaker. And he would uh, pull his VW bus full of <laughs> relay equipment up to a payphone out in the middle of the desert and uh, hook into it. And he'd talk all night to his buddies all around the globe. Now, <laughs> you have to, uh, I had a, a friend who was in California, and this was in the, the early 2000s. And we could run up $400 long-distance phone bills easily. Long-distance was expensive. And, uh, and if you're, you know, a maniacal addict, it could be, thousands of dollars easily so these people were ripping off the phone company for thousands of dollars with these calls so anyway captain crunch actually <laughs> got arrested while he was in jail he wrote the first word processing program for the ibm pc <laughs> so anyway this article was about these early pioneers of that world. Somehow this book by Margaret O'Mara does not uh, go into that alternative history. You'll find that in uh, what the Dormouse said by, uh, what's his name, 
writer for the New York Times, who early on covered uh, the um, computer industry. There's a lot of overlap between the psychedelics community and the early computer community. So what the Dormouse said will get you uh, into that. Anyway, again, if you're um, not up to speed on this material, good summary. It's sort of worth it for me because it's not totally my thing, so it's reminding me of everything. If you really know the story, uh, forget it. It's not. Oh, but in the meantime, uh, and I, I'm going to write a review of the book on Amazon, but I would recommend Lightning in a Jar. I think that's it. It's a story of Xerox Park. And uh, so Xerox realized that they couldn't, you know, office, they dominated the Xerox machine. They dominated the copy machine. But they were vaguely aware that Canon and others were coming along, their patents were going to run out. And uh, they needed more to tie together office automation than just the Xerox machine. Um, IBM really had a vision of office automation. And <clears throat> but even IBM, recall, was slow to the PC, although as soon as they entered it, they totally dominated it. And to this day, the Wintel machines, the Windows machines with Intel processors that are 90% of the market and Mac is less than 10, <clears throat> but those machines are IBM's architecture. When they did get in, they totally took it over. But uh, before that, they had word processors, and a word processor was the size of an office desk <laughs> with, a, with a TV monitor and a keyboard. <laughs> well, that was really owned by Wang. My sister uh, was a legal secretary, so she had to know Wang because all offices used Wang. And then... Um, when they switched over to PCs, it was WordPerfect. So she had to learn WordPerfect. And of course, WordPerfect got replaced by Microsoft Word. But anyway, IBM was aware that there was going to be more to office automation than just this, um, this um, Xerox machine, copy machine. And in fact, the first really into it was Olivetti. Olivetti is an Italian typewriter manufacturer, and they figured it out to go beyond the electric typewriter to the electronic typewriter, that the typewriter would remember what you typed. And maybe it would only be five lines, whatever it was, but you type, and you could go back and wipe stuff out and retype uh, just by pushing a button. Well, that became the word processor. And uh, that was dominated by Wang. These were huge, expensive machines. And as soon as they had uh, PCs, you could just have word processing software and Wang and all the other uh, word processing companies went out of business. And of course, we criticized Wang for they could have written the software for, they had the best word processing software. Um, and they could have ported that software to the PC, and they would have owned that market. But they didn't. It was taken over by WordPerfect, and then they failed to develop, uh, worked on DOS. They failed to develop a Windows version, and uh, Microsoft came to own that with what's now Microsoft Office, which is um, uh, the spreadsheet, the word processing software, uh, PowerPoint, etc. Well, anyway, and of course, it wasn't that uh, WordPerfect was stupid. It was that Microsoft wouldn't let uh, any of their competitors get the inside workings of Windows, so they couldn't make their their programs like Lotus One Two Three, which was the original. The, the, the well, VisiCalc was the original. For the uh, for the a Apple, but the spreadsheet, 
So the dominant spreadsheet in the PC world was Lotus 123, and that got replaced by um, Microsoft Excel because they wouldn't let Lotus see the workings of Windows. Anyway, so I strongly recommend Lightning in a Bottle because it has the story of Xerox Park, Palo Alto Research Center. And uh, what a story. It was the whole thing. So and there's something referred to, and she mentions it in the code, uh, the greatest presentation of all time, or the most important presentation of all time. When, uh, what's his name now? Should have taken notes on this. But anyway, name's going to come to me. Uh, at Stanford, Re SRI, Stanford Research Institute, um, begins with an H. Anyway, he worked out the whole thing. The graphical user interface, the mouse, the local area network, the laser printer, the whole thing. So Xerox took that and developed the, uh, the Alto and then the Xerox Star. Xerox Star is, it does what the Mac does. It was the first Windows machine. And it, it could do stuff that Windows and Mac still can't do today. And uh, Xerox didn't know how to market it. It was too expensive. Of course, it needed a lot of memory. Memory was very expensive then. Remember, I got the first Mac, and it couldn't do anything because it had a 128K of memory or something like that. I mean, it was... <coughs> You'd type, you'd, you, first of all, had one floppy disk. So you had to buy an external floppy drive. Otherwise, you put in the, the word processing floppy disk. You type uh, three pages. Uh, you take out the word processing floppy disk. You put in a blank disk. You save your three pages. Uh, and if you went to four pages, it would crash. <laughs> so uh, uh, anyway... Uh, Xerox created the whole thing, and there's this very famous, uh, and you find it in the in the docudrama movies of the uh, of the time. <clears throat> they arrange a tour for Steve Jobs. He sees it and he takes the whole thing. Now it was agreed upon that um, Xerox would give Apple the technology, but Xerox would get stock in Apple. I don't know how much that stock turned out to be worth, but uh, anyway, <clears throat> now, uh, Xerox should have owned the whole thing. They should have been Mac and uh, Mac and Windows put together, and they had the machine, but they it literally had to bring in a high-power executive from the automobile industry to kill it, <laughs> and then Xerox fell into dark days, and today it... Uh, it has a good Xerox machine, but that's about it. And it has to compete with Canon. And for a while, IBM made a Xerox machine, but they uh, didn't properly license Xerox intellectual property. And so they uh, um, had to pay Xerox a lot of money, and I think they stopped making it. Anyway, that's the code. Then uh, I just downloaded... The Assault on American Excellence by Anthony T. Corman. Well, I haven't started that yet, but it's an attack on PC and universities. So we'll see what he has to say, political correctness in universities. And he's a former dean of the Yale Law School. So um, it's really happening uh, that schools, instead of teaching a body of material are teaching uh, political correctness, what, what to think. And I see it happening in my school. I see it um, everywhere. If you want to follow this, uh, someplace it's covering it, and it, it's from you know preschool through graduate school. I mean, the people with this point of view have totally taken over. It's how they were taught. And they've now, you know, it's been going on for 40 years. So um, people who were 20 years old 40 years ago are 60 today. So they're the, they're the 
the deans and the provosts, et cetera. So it's all through the system. And it's very, I'm not into this that much. Uh, I'll see how I feel about it if I'll listen to this whole book. But it was, it's covered very well in the Atlantic magazine. And it seems that without subscribing, you can get their back articles online. So I read one of them about a, a New York intellectual writer and uh, forget what his wife does. She's, they're both uh, professionals in arts and culture. And their kid gets into a, a the first one he does, their kid does not get into. But then he gets into an excellent private school. And they, you know, this is, they've won the lottery. This is going to guarantee an excellent private high school, which will, you know, I don't know if he guarantees Dalton, but uh, he's on the kids on that path. And then it's going to be an Ivy school. And then, of course, it's a top law firm or McKinsey, right? So, uh, and they decide they're not going to do that. They take the kid out of that school and put him in a public school. And they spend the rest of, uh, I guess he's now uh, finishing high school. And uh, they've been, you know, uh, second guessing, did we do the right thing? <laughs> did we ruin our kid's life? So uh, following through on that, there's another key book that uh, I want to get to. And, uh, but let's take a break and uh, let's, uh, let's do a couple promos and I'll reintroduce the show. I'll be right back. Hey, it's Paul Cavalcante, host of The Vinyl Experience, bringing you a new spin on a classic technology that just keeps getting bigger. Vinyl records are in, and The Vinyl Experience is the original radio show that tells their backstory, one revolution at a time. Join me Fridays at 5 p.m. Eastern on PRN.FM and anytime in the archives. Crackle, crackle. Pop, pop. The Vinyl Experience on PRN.FM. You're tuned to PRN. We'll keep bringing you the best in alternative voices for social and political news, the environment, health, the economy, and a whole lot more. All you have to do is keep listening. PRN, the Progressive Radio Network. Why would anyone ride on top of an elevator, lug around an 11-pound large print dictionary, or compete in a swim race unable to see the course. Well, this is me, and I've got some riveting experiences to share with you. Hey, I'm Mark Farrell. Join me for Insight, a new show coming to PRN.FM. It's about overcoming adversity, and who doesn't experience this in some capacity? I'm no doctor, but I'm an expert in me since I've been dealing with various forms of adverse conditions all my life, like having a rare visual disability that challenges much of what I do. Insight, real-life issues, including mental health, anxiety, depression, suicide, drugs, and alcohol. Celebrity guests will also reveal on Insight how they overcame adversity to make it, as well as your calls on challenges you struggle with. My difference makes me stronger. That's my mantra. Listen and discover how your difference makes you stronger. Insight, Thursdays at 11 a.m. only on PRN.FM. Stay tuned to PRN.FM for more empowering ideas from progressive voices. We're moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. Welcome back. This is John LaBelle, your host, and we're listening to Visionaries on PRN.FM, Progressive Radio Network. So I'm getting everybody up to date on what's on my phone. <laughs> I used to carry a tiny little uh, iPod because, uh, you know, I didn't want to have to mess with my phone. But it's, uh, you know, I sort of gave up. Actually, you can't... <laughs> 
I sent away for a kit to change the battery on those things. But turns out you don't have to. If you want, they're available, and uh, you can buy one with a new battery. And somebody has changed the battery. And they cost, I don't know, maybe $50, $60 used. And the batteries are $40, so it's, um, yeah, I sometimes use it. Anyway... The book I want to talk about next is uh, The Meritocracy Trap, How Americans' Foundational Myth Feeds Inequality, Dismantles the Middle Class, and Devours the Elite. Well, I haven't listened to it yet, so uh, uh, I'll get to that in a future show. And if you look at, oh, probably uh, I mentioned... I mentioned the Atlantic magazine. I would say that's probably the most balanced uh, intellectual magazine, magazine of ideas, <coughs> policies, etc., without a, you know, a radical right-wing or left-wing agenda. And um, pretty balanced in the way it, it, it looks at issues. And <coughs> pretty rich with... Uh, you know, if, you, if you're promoting ideas, of course, it's um, uh, an editorial and advocacy, but they're pretty good at providing a um, uh, inf foundational information for the arguments that they're making. And all of a sudden, uh, a bunch of arguments are popping up about merit, meritocracy. Uh, it probably the our most recent consciousness of it comes from a year ago when that scandal broke of a bunch of prominent business and entertainment people being caught bribing top schools, elite schools, to get their kids in. And <laughs> typically the way you do that, the admissions department is uh, typically not bribable, but the consultant that these people were using would go to a coach, um, a whatever, soccer coach, uh, rowing crew coach, and <coughs> bribe the coach. And the coach would then say, we have to have this student. This student is a fantastic uh, soccer player or crew or whatever. And the kid the admission says, fine, you know, we need athletes, uh, what the heck. And a kid gets in, never shows, uh, participates in the sport, and somehow the, <laughs> the coach buys a new home <laughs> in a fancy neighborhood. So <clears throat> dozens of them got busted in a big sting. And this led to, what you know, what is education all about in this country? And in some cases, the kids work hard, although uh, the story is oft told that the class, the freshman class, whether it's in the college or you know, with, you know, being addressed by the dean or president or the um, law school of these top law schools uh, saying, okay, you've won. You know, it doesn't matter what you do in law school. You got into Yale. You're gonna. You've got it made. You'll have your pick. Um, so it's not based on the merit of these kids or what they do. It's just you have to get into the right schools, and that starts with uh, preschool. And um, you know, it doesn't hurt to be wealthy. And if you're talking about SATs and exams, <coughs> it also doesn't hurt to be wealthy in two senses. One is uh, they can afford the coaching, uh, sometimes cheating, but more often uh, test prep, private test prep courses, which doesn't hurt. We didn't have any of that when I was in school, but I um, uh, <laughs> happened to be in a good school. We all aced the tests. But uh, the other thing is that schools don't teach content anymore. Uh, so there's a long story there. There's an excellent article about it in The Atlantic. So it's theatlantic.com. 
and just uh, search on education, you'll find a whole bunch of these articles. But one I glanced at described a uh, kid and a little girl in an inner city school uh, working on a reading uh, uh, project. And she had to read something about Brazil and then take a, you know, answer questions with fill in the fill in the little circles with her pencil. Well, she had no idea what Brazil was. So everything came out meaningless to her. I remember that. I mean, I was in, uh, what grade was it? I was in junior high uh, and uh, well, maybe the 10th grade and a very good school, a very good English class. Uh, public, but uh, one of the better known schools. And a teacher spotted, I don't know what made her think I was interested in cars. She says, you, you read this essay. It was on Grand Prix racing. G-R-A-N-P-R-I-X. What the hell is P-R-I-X? <laughs> well, you know, Grand Prix, big prize. Uh, it's the elite European racing. But I had no idea what I was reading. Uh, <laughs> I remember another essay. I didn't read it. But I figured I'd you know, get away with uh, the title was, this is a book of essays. So we're reading essays. Uh, the Long Snowfall. Well, you can guess what that's about, right? Turns out it's about sedimentation in the ocean. <laughs> You know, over millions of years, um, uh, diatoms or whatever, these little creatures form and then slowly sink and build up layers of limestone or whatever in the, in the bottom of the ocean. So I'm writing this essay about a snowstorm because <laughs> I hadn't read the essay. <laughs> anyway. My, my parents didn't do quite the right thing. My mother always told me how smart I was. <laughs> Apparently, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to tell kids, you did a good job working hard uh, to encourage them to work hard rather than tell them that they're smart. Then they think they don't have to do the homework. <laughs> anyway, um, so schools don't teach content anymore. They want to teach students to read and critical thinking. Well, it turns out you can't think unless you have something to think about. So to try to teach critical thinking without a foundation of factual information doesn't work, which is the reason why there's this failure of, in education in this country. But notice the failure is in inner city schools. Now, both my mother and my father grew up yeah, middle, middle class and lower middle class in New York and went to the New York school system, which at the time, my mother thinks, was probably the best school system in the world. And it was filled with minority kids and immigrants who didn't speak the language, and but they knew how to teach. And there's a total collapse of teaching in the school system because it's totally controlled by um, whole word reading and critical thinking rather than facts, accumulation of facts. And it doesn't work. And uh, so what happens with rich suburban kids is even if their school is dominated by whole word, whole word reading is what I learned, where you just grok the word. You don't sound out the syllables. You see the whole word. So if I see, oh, indiscriminate, uh, I might, you know, the word is indiscriminate, I might see insubordinate. And I'm saying, well, how, well, what is the sentence saying? And I'll go back, oh, because I don't sound it out. I grok it. I take one, you know, I see the whole word. Well, whole word reading is proved to be a disaster. The educational system will not give it up. Every you know, experiment shows that sounding out the words 
will work. That even if it's a word you don't recognize, if you sound it out, you will recognize the sound. Um, Brazil. Oh, I've heard for that country rather than what is that word? Is that a, you know, uh, anyway. Um, but rich suburban kids have been to Brazil. You know, their kids give them this richment of experience. They go to museums, they um, read on their own, they watch uh, TV documentaries with their parents, they go away to computer coding camp, they uh, take art lessons after school, etc. So that even without the test prep, they're going to do better on the SATs because they've had an education, which inner city kids have not had. Anyway, I'll talk more about this when, uh, after I've read the meritocracy trap, but there's a lot in it. And uh, if you want to read it, uh, we can, you can call and we can discuss it in a week or so. Uh, it reminds me of one more thing. There's a book that, thank God for uh, Amazon. <clears throat> I remember when Amazon started selling used books, and there was an outcry. This is not fair to publishers and authors. This is because the author doesn't get <clears throat> a um, royalty on the sale of the used book. So is this unfair to the author? Well, I live in New York. Um, I can go to the Strand Bookstore, and I'm old enough to remember when Lower Fifth Avenue, there was a dozen used bookstores. Now there are a couple of tiny ones, but the Strand is uh, what's left. And the city's trying to do it in. They've landmarked the building, which the current owner is furious about. But anyway, what, and they don't have every book, but Amazon does. My parents, uh, my mother's father was a mystery story writer. And so he would publish in Black Cat and Black Mask magazine, which were the mystery magazines of the 20s and 30s. And when my parents got married, they're lying in bed on a sweltering, they were in the New Deal living in Washington, on a sweltering, unair-conditioned summer evening. And my mother says to my father, how would you commit the perfect murder? And my father says, as so. And my mother says, okay, if you were the detective, how would you solve it? And my father says, as so. And my mother says, we have to write a mystery. So they did, sent it off to Harper's, and Harper's published it and won an, an Edgar Award. And if I lose track of my copy, I just go on Amazon and buy one for 20 bucks. And somewhere, somewhere in the world is selling The Shadow and the Blot, <laughs> which is their mystery. Anyway, um, so a book that uh, I've reread is Copperman, I'm forgetting his first name, uh, Copperman, The Literacy Hoax. And he does, uh, he's the one who identified that SAT scores are going down. The education establishment did everything they could to hide that fact. Yeah, they rejiggered the averages, they changed the test, but there's been a decline ever since around 1960, which is the year the education department started. <laughs> I have a colleague at school who won't talk to me. Uh, we were in some meeting, and he says, you know, President so-and-so, I forget which one it was, some Republican, uh, wants to disband the Department of Education. So I said, what does the Department of Education do? And he says, education. I said, no, it doesn't. The states do that. They formulate certain policies, but they're not responsible for education. That's on the state level. And so, you know, we had this kind of argument. Well, I said, well, what does it do? So he, said, oh, he won't talk to me anymore. So I had to be careful uh, at school. But anyway, uh, 
the decline in education in this country begins with the beginning of the creation of the Department of Education, and it's been going down ever since. So, and, and I'm looking this up. Uh, my mother pointed this out years ago, but I looked it up. There's about one million New York City school children. New York City school system budget is 24 billion. Now, I have problems with math when you get to that many zeros, but I think that's $240,000 per student is the New York City school budget. And then they complain, you know, that we don't have enough money. Wow. Ah, you, could, you could send every New York City school student to two Swiss boarding schools for that. <laughs> it's not money. Anyway, um, so I'll see more what they say about uh, the meritocracy. Uh, the final book I want to mention, really great book, is called Range. Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World by David Epstein. Now, interestingly, <clears throat> he was a sports writer, and he got into this book. Now, there's a, an essay I like to quote. I should have printed it out, uh, and it's in the New York Times. And I'm not going to – It's the, the author is Grant, and if you want to look it up, it's How to Raise a Creative Child. It's a beautiful essay, and it begins, uh, <laughs> the subtitle is How to Raise, raise a Creative Child. Back off. <laughs> so uh, we've all heard of the book Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mom. So this is about, it's by a Chinese-American woman, woman, and she, the book is about her philosophy of educating her kids, and I, I have a lot of Chinese students, so <clears throat> I like to ask when we talk about this, because I do a course in creativity, how many of you uh, had a tiger mom? <laughs> and they get a little bit nervous about raising their hand, but tiger mom is uh, no play dates, six hours of homework, and then violin lessons every day, including Sunday. <laughs> That's a tiger mom. So, um, and there's a book by Angela Duckworth. And it's a very important book called Grit. And what happened was she was a very bright student, went uh, through the elite educational system, went to work for McKinsey. That's the top, you know, if you don't go to a top law firm, you go to McKinsey. They're a corporate consulting firm. From McKinsey, you can then go on and do anything, become a CEO of a major corporation. So she um, left McKinsey to teach in a public school system. So these are people you have to admire. So when she talks about what's going on there, she knows what she's talking about. And what she observed was schools, I mean, obviously it's both, but the schools are not failing the kids. The kids are failing the schools. Uh, they, don't do, they don't work. They don't do their education. They don't have grit. So she looks at the military, at um, sports, and looks at grit, sticking it out, doing the, doing the homework, doing the exercise, doing the training. This became all a fad. Everybody was talking about it. And this book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, attacks that notion. <clears throat> so you've probably heard of the 10,000 hours thing, that to master a discipline, and the ones that were studied referred to in the studies, uh, soccer, chess, tennis, uh, piano, violin, uh, takes 10,000 hours of practice to master the discipline. Well, I forget the name of the psychologist it's in my book on creativity called Visionary Creativity, but <clears throat> it was popularized by Malcolm Gladwell. So people attribute it to him, but it, he's 
uh, a journalist. It's not. He didn't do the social science studies. Anyway, uh, this book refutes that. says that's partially true in some very narrow, highly, like chess, highly rule-based disciplines. But being a, a lot of uh, creativity, a lot of success in life, requires being a generalist. And obviously, you can pick the examples to make the point you want to make. But this does a really good job. And this essay by Grant, How to Raise a Creative Child, refers to a study comparing um, successful scientists with, in given fields, with Nobel Prize winners in those fields, and found out, now I'm not going to remember the exact numbers, but the uh, Nobel Prize numbers were 20 times as likely to be in an amateur theater group, or to be a painter, or to write poetry, 10 times likely uh, than comparable scientists that did not win a uh, Nobel Prize, to um, have traveled broadly, five times as likely, etc., that the Nobel Prize winners are distinguished from their well-accomplished colleagues in the same field by their breadth, or in the case of this book, their range. So, um, highly recommend it. I just finished it. Maybe we'll go into more detail. I actually bought the paper copy so that I can um, uh, uh, do the, uh, you know, give them some reprints from it. But anyway, I'm going to wrap up now. This has been uh, John LaBelle. You're listening to Visionaries. You'll find us every Monday at 10 a.m. on the Progressive Radio Network. That's prn.fm. And um, catch all our back shows, including this one in a couple of days, at visionaries.podbean. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N as a Nancy, dot com. You'll find all our back shows. Check them out. And see you next Monday. 